Is that it's it? Probably. That was probably it. What, were you threw those things over? No, no. It was, can uh, you hear now? Can you hear us now? Hello. Keep talking, Bria, because they can't hear yeah. you if you're not talking. Yeah, working now. There we go. Okay. okay. All right. I'm going to do another restart. i got to remember to always check that thing. Okay, one more time. It's four o'clock on a Monday, and you know what that means, don't you? It's time for another exciting episode of Taxi TV Live. This week, starring very special guest star, Mr. Barry Devorzon. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Michael. <laughs> My pleasure. So as I was saying uh, a minute ago when we didn't have audio, um, Barry and I have known each other for like 15 or 20 years, and uh, we're dear friends, and put the two of us on a phone call, and we'll, we can spend an afternoon on a phone call. And uh, I always love interviewing him because I, some people think of you as a hit songwriter. Some people think of you as an entrepreneur. I think of you as one of the great rock tours. You're a rock tour. Um, you can tell a story. Not only can you tell a story well, you've got like a thousand of them in your arsenal because you've lived the kind of life that other people are envious of. You really have. And uh, it, it's just, you know, sometimes when I can't sleep at night, Barry, I just want to call you up and say, tell me a story, Barry. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll never disappoint you. <laughs> Well, you've got some great ones. So uh, we'll, we'll get into all the contemporary stuff. I do want to go. Well, first of all, you know what? Let me read some of your bio because for people who didn't read, will see this later and didn't have the opportunity to read the email. Um, Barry founded Valiant Records in 1960. During the 60s, he signed the, the band The Association. Remember, um, uh, what was Along uh, Comes Mary, Cherish, Cherish, Never My Love. Yep. Massive Windy. hits. Oh, great stuff. Uh, it produced its first single, a cover of the Bob Dylan tune, One Too Many Mornings. Uh, Barry also wrote, I wonder what she's doing tonight for the Cascades, but the group didn't record it. In 1963, Barry recorded the song himself with his group, Barry and the Tamerlanes, and that name Tamerlane will come into play shortly. Also in 63, co-wrote the ballad Shy Girl, which was recorded by the Cascades. He's composed the soundtracks to many 1970s and 80s films. One of those uh, tunes, Cotton's Dream, from Bless the Beasts and Children, was retitled later as Nadia's theme, but you guys may know it best as the theme for um, The Young and the Restless. And it's how long has it been on the air? Like 35 oh, years or something? Yeah. I mean, seriously, you've got kids that aren't as old as that thing. <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of those shows have gone by... Yeah, right. Almost all the subs have yeah. gone, but that one's one of the two that's left, I believe. Yeah. Um, it was a number hit on uh, the top 40 in 76. Uh, the album peaked at number 42. Um, it won a Grammy for Best Instrumental Arrangement. Um, the main title song, Bless the Beast and Children, was recorded by the Carpenters, which, I mean, that right. was a good get. Everybody wanted to get a song oh, by yeah. the Carpenters. It received an Academy Award nomination. Jeez. I didn't win, but it was great being there. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what they say. Um, 
Dvorzan composed a tune. It's Christmas one again, once again in Santa Barbara, which was re-recorded with various other city names, such as San Francisco, San Diego. So if you had a San in your city name, you were bound to do a version of your song, uh, which was kind of brilliant. Did you write it that way, knowing it was like a marketing thing that other people would cut it in other cities? No, no. A bunch, uh, a bunch of us who live in Santa Barbara did it to raise money for a local charity. Uh, and and, uh, and it just caught on. Well, we should let San Antonio and some of the other Sands know about it, so they cut it. Uh, Barry also wrote the theme from SWAT uh, and co-wrote the Eagles hit with Joe Walsh in the city, um, which is another great story. In 1979, he wrote that in 79 for the movie The Warriors. When people on our staff today found out that the guy who wrote the music for The Warriors was going to be here, they were like stopping me in the kitchen in the hallway <laughs> going, that dude wrote the music for The Warriors? <laughs> I mean, that movie has become such a cult movie. I, I can't believe it. I know. Uh, it's great. Uh, let's see. Oh, and most recently, he was one of the developers uh, of Master Writer, the songwriting software, which we'll get into later. And even more recently, has launched SongGuard, which we will also get into. But first, I want to talk to you about, let's see, I've got notes on several pages here. Um, I just want to spend like three minutes to, because this is about music success. But I think the thing that really makes you so incredibly unique is that you've got the creative spirit of a songwriter and a composer, and you also have this entrepreneurial side, and you're able to balance the two. Uh, a lot of creative people are just, they create, they emote, and whatever comes out of them is what happens, and, and they don't really think about, well, gee, if I have a hit, maybe I should sock some of this money away. Uh, and you did that starting in the 60s by buying real estate, and I mean, whether you guys, you know, assuming you have a hit at some point or make a nice chunk of money with something in film or TV, how, how did you know that to not, you know, like snort it, drink it, um, or do what other rock stars do with their money. Instead, you, you had the instinct to invest it wisely, and it worked. Well, I do have that side of the brain. Yeah. And, uh, and a lot of creative people don't. In a lot of ways, I've never been sure if that didn't impede the creative side a little really? bit. But it does have the advantage of... Uh, of perhaps helping me understand that just because you have a hit, there is no guarantee you're going to have a second hit. That's right. And if you have a second hit, there is no guarantee you're going to have a third. So until you really get to a place where you're bulletproof, you better take some of that money and invest it, put it away, you know. And I think mistake a lot of successful young successful songwriters and artists make is they they work they try they work and then they hit it and they make the mistake of thinking that's it i'm here i'm in right yeah, yeah. and a good part of the time that is not the case so you have to just be cautious enough to say okay maybe i have made it but i'm going to put a little bit of rainy day money aside in an investment Boy, you were, or something. You were so prescient uh, investing in real estate of, in Santa Barbara originally, I think, or San Diego? Well, L.A., really, and San Diego. 
Uh, and why real estate? Well, because I was a young guy, I certainly didn't know anything about the stock market or what shrewd investments would be and so forth and so on. But my dad was a musician all his life and then he went into real estate. So I had that background. I said, well, land is not going anywhere. So and real not estate. making more of it, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. so at least I felt safer yeah. knowing even if I overpaid, I'd never lose it. Wow. Well, that was a good bet. And I hope that you inspire other people to have that thought when they make some money. Because I see it uh, with some of our members that um, start making money, you know, when they have their first, let's say, $50,000 a year from uh, a lot of times getting instrumental cues placed in reality shows. And some of the members invest it wisely and hang on to it and don't assume that next year will be as good or that it will continue forever. And uh, some people don't. And they go out and the first thing they do is spend $50,000 on building a massive home studio, you know, building walls within walls and doing all kinds of acoustic treatments and stuff. And at the end of the day, they really were doing just fine with a, with a keyboard sitting on a desk and a couple of monitors and a computer. So I, I think that you're not only an inspiration, but a good model for all that whatever form in, of investment that people should think about that in the get go, because, you know, a, a music, it, it's a job like any other. You got to save money. Well, I think I think it's a good thing for you to tell your people because uh, <laughs> it's the way it is. So. What keeps you going so strong? I mean, you've, you're active even at an age that most people would be retired. Anybody else would be retired, but not you. Uh, and I mean, you're always starting something. You're always involved in something. You're always doing. Is that just your, your nature? Is that a, something you got from the family gene pool? Or well, what, what motivates you? Look at it this way. I've, I've been very fortunate. Yeah. I've been able to do what I love doing and make a living. So really, you know, you can't always be on the front line writing hits. I understand that. But I, I have no interest in retiring. You know, I mean, why? What am I going to do? I, you know, so uh, maybe I'm That's not in point. the, I'm you not in the trenches. <laughs> well, yeah, but, uh, you know. Not your thing. Yeah, but how long can you fish or golf? Uh, I'd like I, to test that. Yeah, well, you you deserve a rest. This is the hardest working man <laughs> no, I no. know. Second hardest. I'm yeah. sitting next to the hardest. But I still have a, an interest in life and people, and I, I like the feeling of accomplishment. And, uh, and so I see no reason uh, why I should retire. Now, what I, I have adjusted slightly yeah. is I... I don't work quite at the the rate I did when I was much younger, you know. So I just find a great part-time job that I can really be interested <laughs> in. And you know something? It, it just makes life more interesting. I have plenty of time for leisure time. And most importantly, it keeps you young, or at least young at heart. You have an award-winning personality. 
anybody who knows you would say that. And we've got mutual friends, friends of mine from college, from you know the 70s, as it turns out, live near Barry and have gotten to know him over the years. And the times that Barry's name has come up in conversation, they'll say, man, that guy's the sweetest guy. He's funny. He's always got a great joke. He's got a great story. So I think your personality, which I mean, I don't think you can really work on a personality. You're kind of born with it. But you were blessed in the personality department because you're likable and, and feel trustworthy. I think people want to do business with people who put themselves out there and live up to their word. And I think that's who you are at your core. Well, can I come back here once a month and hear all this good stuff? <laughs> well, it's, it's all true, every word of it. Uh, look, if you were a conniving shyster, I don't think that you'd be where you are today. I think that people want to do business with you, and they will climb on board with your projects and, and, and you know use your songs and buy your products because you're ethical, and that's part of the stew that makes those things up. Well... I've always been a believer in karma. I've always been a believer in cause and effect. Mm. And I really think it works. What you put out there is going to come back at you. So if it's good stuff, good stuff is going to come back to you. And vice versa, if it's bad stuff, I believe bad stuff will. Yeah. But I think it's important, at least it's been for me to have a moral compass, to always do the right thing to never cheat or do the wrong thing, and I, you know. I see it in your sons. I, I know yeah. all three of your sons, um, and I, I know two of them better than, than the third. I mean, I know Michael, but not all that uh -huh. well. Um, but I know um, Matt and Daniel pretty well, and, and they're reflective of your personality and your ethics. You know, the, it, I could pick them out of a crowd based on personality and know that they're your kids. So well, you did good there. I, I think I did. Yeah. If you perceive that in my sons, then I've done the job I was supposed to do. But, you know, it's it's not only tied to our luck and our good fortunes, but... Deep down in here, where no one else knows, you know. Just in what case you've that's done. out of frame, that was his stomach. <laughs> yeah, that he was yeah. Doing that. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, you, you're the one who knows. Yeah. Whether you've done something you're ashamed of or not, and you know, doesn't matter if the rest of the world doesn't know. So it just, I mean, living your life with those principles, I believe, gives you a fuller and a more satisfying and a better life. And you and your wife, Jalinda, have done a lot of stuff, um, charitable work uh, in and around the Santa Barbara area. I, I know because I've been to your house and I've think, seen the 22 million photographs of you guys and just about every known star on the planet Earth, mostly, I'm guessing, from the Santa Barbara Film Festival, and that's where you've gotten to know them. But um, giving back has certainly been thematic in your life. Well, I have to give all that credit to my wife. Well, she you did know. marry you. All my life I wanted to be someone, now I am. <laughs> Jalinda Devorzon's husband. In Santa Barbara, that's how I'm known. I get it. In a, well, I don't want to say where I live, but yeah, in the town I live in, I'm known as Deborah Lasko's <laughs> husband. I completely relate to that. So did you have a master plan? I, um, well, let's start from the beginning. Uh, let's see, yeah, we're okay on time. Uh, start from the beginning. So... Uh, I know that you grew up out in, in Palm Springs, and at what point did you want to become a songwriter, and what was your, kind of your, your life steps to get you to the point of having your first hit? 
well, real fast, my, my, my dad was a musician all his life. Was that how he earned his income or just recreationally? Oh, no, that's how he earned his income. Wow. Yeah. In fact, he was one of the original Connecticut Yankees with Rudy Valley when Rudy Valley was like Elvis Presley. Wow. You know? And uh, then he, he had a told me this. small group, and they played only the best rooms. And uh, But he loved his family, so we were gypsies. He took us from one city to the next. And uh, after a while, my mom said, look, we, we just can't do this to these kids anymore. We were uprooting them from one school to the next. And she says, you know, we've got to settle down. So they decided to settle in Palm Springs. And then he went out on the road for a little while and then said, I don't like it. Yeah. So we went into real estate and essentially quit the entertainment business. Well, did he play keyboard or guitar? No, he was a singer and played violin. He had a, a guitar player and a, a, a either a piano player or a bass. They a trio. Wow. But it was a different kind of entertainment at the time. And you know, he played all the big rooms in, in all the hotels and. Uh, uh, it's where people used to come and drink and people would sing and, you know, it's a, a different yeah. time. Um, but the one thing they were convinced of is, I think they still drink and listen to music. Just no, but it's different. Put that out it's there. different. <laughs> yeah. You know, there used to be piano bars where people sang. You know, it was yeah. a little bit different. But the one thing they knew and they were unified in, they did not want me to become a musician. Hmm. They wanted something better for me. It sounds like your dad did pretty well, though. Well, no, they didn't. They didn't encourage me. They didn't have me uh, learn an instrument. They bought a piano for my sister because that was okay for the girl to a be girl, able to right? play the piano. <laughs> and she had no interest, so the piano became a piece of furniture in the living room. My dad didn't play it. My sister didn't play it. And I didn't play it, so it just sat there. And then in high school... I just was drawn to it, and I came and used to kibitz around on it, and I taught myself to play the piano. They never gave me piano lessons. You're probably they, better off. Yeah, they just—they were that determined, but they didn't think in terms of songwriting and producing, and you know, they just thought of a traveling musician. How old were you when you tried to craft your first song? Oh, I wrote a bunch of songs uh, in high school. And of course, my friends liked them and my folks liked them. Mm -hmm. But that was it. Uh, and then uh, I went to, to Pasadena City College and uh, I went on a television show for songwriters called Peter, Peter something, Peter Power, some, some kind of television show. And I went on with some of my college buddies and uh, playing background, and, and my song won. Wow. <laughs> and I said, I'm in. You know, this <laughs> is was great. Like the American Idol yeah. of its time, yeah. right? And of course, nothing ever happened. <laughs> and then I went into the Navy. You know, so. How long were you in the Navy? Four years. Wow, that's a long stint. Yeah. Yeah. And did you do anything musical during the Navy years, or were you too busy swabbing decks or whatever? No music whatsoever. 
And were you like, did you have a burning desire to get back to it as soon as you got out? Did you feel like you were imprisoned? And All right, now you're going to get into the nitty-gritty story. Yeah. I came out of the Navy, and I signed up to go to Carrier Air Conditioning and Refrigeration School. I've got a Carrier Air Conditioner at yes. home. I know I, who to call now. <laughs> even as a young man, I had vision. I said, air conditioning is the coming thing. And in the Navy, I was an engineer, so I worked with some uh -huh. of that along with uh, the steam turbines. Uh, so I w was going to go to air conditioning and refrigeration school and because I thought air conditioning was a new thing. And, of course, I was right. Absolutely And right. had I gone to Carrier, I probably would have made more money than I made in music even. But you probably own Carrier. <laughs> anyway, so I was all signed up to go, and my sister called me from Palm Springs, and she said, Barry, they recorded your song. It's on the radio. Who I said, recorded? What? <laughs> Who? What? Apparently, while I was in the Navy, she worked for a music publisher, and she kept pushing oh, my wow. songs. And this guy got one of my songs recorded. Uh, by a guy called Bob Carroll on Bally Records, and uh, and it turned out to be the song that I played on that television show. All right? Wow. So and did they have any of the publishing at that point, or they pitched it, your sister pitched it, while no, you still he, owned all the publishing? he had the publishing. Okay. Yeah. Um, and he pitched it, I don't know, you know, uh, he didn't even, no one knew that it was recorded. Anyway, my sister called the radio station. She says, somebody stole my brother's song. And so the DJ said, who, who's your brother? She says, Barry Dvorzon. He says, well, that's who wrote it. Anyway, back in L.A., when I hear this, I go down to Sunset and Vine, which is Music City, the biggest record store in L.A. And I go in there, and I said, do you have Look What You've Done to Me, Bob Carroll? And the girl says, yes, we do. Wow, that and must have been a I picked up the record moment. and saw my name on that record, and it was, Hello, Music Business, <laughs> Goodbye, Carrier. All right? I bought that record. I got in my car. I'm driving back to my apartment in L.A., and I'm saying, I'm, I'm, amazed. I'm rich. This is great. <laughs> you know? Of course... I made two hundred and fifty nine dollars. Which would be like song. making twenty k today. But. No, no, <laughs> it's a it was a, a real awakening. You know, just because your name is on a record doesn't mean you're going to make that much money. But you so. did have a hit not long after, right? That's another story. I want to hear it. Well, when I decided I wanted to be in the music business, I, I went after it. And that, I've always done that in life. Mm -hmm. I pounded the pavements. I went everywhere. I networked. I wrote songs. I just, it was a 10-hour day every day. Uh, and I got some things recorded. I didn't have a publisher, so I was pushing my own stuff. Uh, but nothing happened much. Over what period of time? Like six months, a year, a couple of years? A year, okay, and I was in a publisher's office, and and he says, "Kid, you ought to try writing country music." Well, I was so desperate. I said, "Maybe I should." 
Now in the Navy, I hated country music. Because okay. the cooks on my destroyer, <laughs> they kept playing country music and I didn't like it, you know. I mean, but you know, I was stuck with it. But I was a desperate young man, so I uh, tuned in the country station. And boy, country music was really country at that time. You know, Webb Pierce, I just didn't get it. Its it, own craft. Yeah. It wasn't like typical songwriting. Yeah, yeah. I just, well, no, it's great songwriting, but no, it's but country. Not like, right, but not yeah. like pop that, you know. Yeah, so until I heard a guy called Marty Robbins. Mm -hmm. And Marty Robbins was a, a very contemporary country artist. He was more in the pop, uh, you know, field, more, well, country pop. Yeah. So I got him. So I said, okay, there's my man, Marty Robbins. I got to write a song for Marty Robbins. And I sat down to write my first country song. And you know, you really have to pay attention. It just isn't that easy Were you to writing? go and... Writing to, by yourself? Yeah. At this point? Okay. To go into just a completely different genre and think you're just going to knock it off, you know? So I really had to keep listening to the country station and I try to, I say, well, yeah, I need a hook. Country music loves hooks. And I opened a magazine and I saw this car in an advertisement. Uh, driving away with the tin cans tied to the back bumper and on the back of the window it said just married and I said there's my hook so I wrote this song just married this morning how happy they are just married written on the window of their car is how the song Sweet. started anyway I worked on this song and I finally got to a place where I said that has Marty Robbins name on it <laughs> you know now I have a problem. How do I get it to Marty Robbins? This is all resonating like crazy for our audience, I'm sure, because I think every <laughs> musician, every songwriter certainly has been yeah. in this place where they had this thing they wrote and certainly could get it, yeah. or wanted to get it, needed to get it. Now what? You know, anyway. And he was in Nashville, and you were in L.A.? You know, I was so naive. I didn't even know he was in Nashville. You know, wow. I just knew Marty Robbins. I got to get this song to Marty Robbins. Yeah, that so, didn't stop you, I'm sure. So I was in another publisher's office, and he left the room to go to the bathroom, and I looked on his desk, and I see all these uh, record company uh, addresses and everything. And I knew that Marty Robbins recorded for Columbia. So I went over there real fast, grabbed a piece of paper, and wrote down the address of Columbia Records, you know, and then put it in my pocket. The guy comes back. So now... Very divorce on yeah, spy. I, <laughs> I, I go home, and now I take, get this envelope, and in those days we had discs, you know, right. the, what do you call it, the, you uh, know, the hard disk. Yeah, an acetate probably. Uh, yeah, an acetate. So I put this acetate in here, and I sent this song this is gonna be funny, to the president of Columbia Records in New York City, who was Mitch Miller. Wow. So I sent it to Mitch the president. Mitch Miller as in the Mitch Miller show. Yeah. Right, okay. Yeah, but he happened to be the president of Columbia Records also. So I sent it to Mr. Mitch Miller, Columbia Records, New York. Well, and I didn't include anything in there because I don't know Mitch Miller. What am I gonna say, you know? So you didn't have a cover letter even? No. I just put it in there knowing I, I was young. Was your name? I was on young it and, and stupid. Okay, and uh, so I said, 
the minute they hear this, they're going to know. Of course. <laughs> it's for Marty Robbins, you know. Now, I that sounds stupid and naive, but it's true. It's classic you know, is what it is. I, I, I didn't say uh, anything, you know. So I put it in there <laughs> and sent it to Mitch Miller. Now, let me, let me share something with you. For the president of Columbia Records, not the A&R mm -hmm. or the producer, to even open a letter from some kid on the coast called Barry Dvorak, to open a package, was very unlikely. And even if he didn't, or even if he did, or his secretary did, it goes right into the filing cabinet yeah. called the wastebasket. <laughs> because there's certain, you know, liabilities attached yeah. to that. So, and then lastly, it should have gone to Marty Robbins' producer in Nashville. That's where it should have gone. But it, instead, it went to the president of Columbia Records, Ms. Miller. Well, the chances of anyone hearing that and getting it in Marty Robbins' hands are in the same category as buying a lottery ticket. <laughs> and I'm not kidding. I, I it believe was that. that unlikely. Yeah. And, of course, nothing happened. So, one day I'm out there pounding the pavements, running around. I'm so poor, I'm living with my aunt, Aunt Eleanor, okay? Mm -hmm. And I come home at the end of the day, and Aunt Eleanor says, Barry, Barry, uh, uh, Mr. Mitch Miller is trying to reach you, and he left this number for you. I said, Mitch Miller? Oh, my God! You know, so I run in the house. It's 5, 5.30 in California, so it's 8.30 in New York, you know? So I called the number, and since it's 8.30, he picked up the phone. You know, wow. everyone else was gone. I said, uh, Mr. Mitch Miller? He said, yes. I said, this is Barry DeVore's on. Uh, I, you called me and wanted me to call? <laughs> yes, <laughs> such yes. a great story. So I said, well, um, wh wh what is it? He said, well, you sent me a song called uh, Just Married. I said, yes, sir. He said, and I recorded it with one of my major artists, and I just wanted to know the status of the song. I said, well, the status of the song, Mr. Miller, is it's yours. You know, <laughs> this is great. Uh, who, who did you record it with? And he says, uh, Marty Robbins. Wow. Now, can you... I, Only to this, you. To Only this, you, Barry. To this, this stuff doesn't happen for normal people. To this day, that is one of the greatest moments in my life. Uh, that the guy I wrote it for, they recorded. Now, the new, it, it gets even better because Just Married went to number one and stayed at number one in the country charts for six months. That's incredible. Yeah. Traded off with another song at the time called Oh Lonesome Me. And it was either Just Married number one and Oh Lonesome Me two and vice versa. <clears throat> and that's how I got my first hit. Did you have publishers beating a path to your door after that, wanting to get a, you know a, a piece of you because you had a hit on your first outing? No, but but it helped. Yeah, you know the minute you get any kind of credibility, people yeah. are listening to you. But I'll tell you something funny. So what do you think I was doing? I was writing Marty Robbins' follow-up hit. Okay, and so I wrote this song for Marty called "Treasure of Your Love." And I sent it to my new best friend, Mitch Miller. Okay? <laughs> this is great. This time, two weeks goes by, Mitch Miller calls Barry DeVorzon. <laughs> Barry, I got that song, Treasure of Your Love. Oh, great. 
great, Mr. Miller. Uh, he says, I recorded it. I said, oh, terrific, with Marty? He says, no, with Eileen Rogers. And I went, Eileen Rogers? Who was Eileen Rogers? I mean, this song was for Marty. You know, but I didn't say that. Right. I was thinking it. And I'm saying, wow, I never heard of Eileen Rogers. I, mean, I was disappointed. So, Eileen Rogers had one hit in her entire career, and it was with my song, Treasure of Your Love. You were the golden boy. So by the time I got to New York and met Mitch Miller, <laughs> he took me around Columbia with his arm around me. He said, see this kid? I've had two major hits with him, and this is the first time Do you time remember how old you were? Obviously in your 20s, but... Yeah, I was like 24. Wow. Yeah. And uh, it, it was just amazing. It is amazing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're like, uh, oh, what was the Tom Hanks character, uh, the, the ping pong? Somebody help me here. Tom Hanks, that movie, uh, he was a soldier in Vietnam. Forrest Gump. Forrest Gump. Well, Forrest Gump. Yeah, oh, you're Forrest like Gump. Forrest Gump, you know? I mean, you're everywhere and you could do no wrong. Well, <laughs> do you know something? Yeah, luck play such a well big, you might have written role. a couple of great songs that had something to do with it yes it did they didn't cut yeah. crap you know no it it all falls into place it's luck it's when the opportunity hits having the goods which means you know, even then i was a perfectionist when i put something out it was absolutely my best and you know that's important because when that opportunity arrived, I had the goods. Uh, and the third thing to remember, I think, is try anything. What have you got to lose? You see, a lot of people wouldn't try to do that because it's it's too far-fetched to send your song to Columbia from, you know. Well, now but, you get arrested as a stalker, but you know, you gotta but, try. Yeah, you gotta try, just try things. How did you know at that young age and with that lack of experience, how did you know anything about songcraft? Because somebody like Mitch Miller was not going to take a song that wasn't rich with craft. You were obviously writing stuff in, you know, in classic pop form for the time. Um, how did you learn that? I guess, you know, throughout life, I was... Uh, a person who always tried to do their best. It was just kind of my discipline. Did you listen you know? to a lot of stuff and just you know absorb it by osmosis so it became part of your writing soul, if you will? Well, yeah, you know, music, professional, being a, trying to be a professional in the music business, I was smart enough to know I better really understand what's going on and, and the best way to get a piece of it, and, you know, and that you, you got to pay attention, and uh, and then uh, that was all part of educating myself. But I think instinctively, I just couldn't write a song unless I thought it was great, and I I didn't I didn't finish writing it until I thought it was great. I want to jump ahead. I was going to talk about Master Writer later on in this discussion, but. I saw you go through that with Master Writer. You know, there are rhyming dictionaries out there. Anybody can use the thesaurus in Microsoft Word. 
there are tools that songwriters routinely use, but Master Writer was so incredibly comprehensive. When, when you rolled it out, there was so much stuff in it. And over the years, you've never let go of that urge or that drive to keep improving it and keep adding more features to it. Um, I remember when at one point you were doing like version 2.0 of it, you probably spent two or three years just adding all kinds of words to it and stuff. Tell me a little bit about the journey uh, into creating Master Writer. Was it your own frustration that caused you to do it or was it seeing other people struggling to find the right word? Tell me what caused you to do it and then I'll have you explain what it is. Well, Another songwriter brought up the idea to me and somehow, I wasn't interested, but he talked me into doing it. Good to know, you can be talked into Yeah, something. and I said, well, <laughs> you know, this sounds like something, yeah, a collection of tools for songwriters. Yeah, this sounds like a good idea. And like anything else I said earlier, I'm putting something back into a, a profession that's been very good to me. Mm -hmm. I said, yeah, why not help the songwriter out? Believe me, the songwriter needs all the help he can get. So the only mistake I made is thinking that it was going to be easy. When I, when I should have known, nothing is easy. Right. If you want to succeed in this world, whether it's a songwriter or in a business or whatever, just remember, Nothing is easy, and you know this better than I anyone. do, but your first stories, you know, about Marty Robbins and Mitch Miller make it sound like it was kind of easy for you, but I, I know you Sometimes well Lady Luck steps in yeah. and makes it easier. But you did have to write great songs or it wouldn't happen, because Mitch Miller yeah. was, you know, he was the song guy at the time. He was well, Clive Davis before Clive Davis was Clive Davis. Well, I can sum up Master Rider in this respect. I'm going to use a... Um, what would you call a, a metaphor? <clears throat> We're in a business where it's very difficult to succeed mm -hmm. and a very small percentage of people who aspire to be songwriters and artists are able to do it. Right. And I, I'm, I don't mean get famous, I mean make a living doing what they love doing. Yeah. Well, professional athletics is really no, no different. All these people playing basketball and football are across our nation. Only a precious few become pros. So I ask you this. If I had a program that would make a professional basketball player or football player 5% better, do you think anyone would not buy that program? Absolutely. Because that 5% is a big 5% in professional athletics. But there's a big difference, and you and I have had this conversation over the years, which is that athletes know they have to work hard at muscle memory and muscle training and all sorts of things that go into being a great athlete. Musicians somehow feel like they're born imbued with this creative power, that they come out of their mommy's womb just talented, ready to go. It's a, the rare musician that understands that they not only have to do the work, but they should use the tools to do it. Well, so. yeah, I mean, you can either take that tire off with a lug wrench or you can get a power tool, you know. Right. You know, so 
Master writer is, is kind of a power, power tool, tool when you need one. Mm -hmm. You know, and I'm... It doesn't write the songs for you. No, and, and you use it as you feel. Give fit, me an example. You know. uh, well, uh, you can use it only when you need it. You or, and I, you, or you can use it after you've written the song and you want to finesse it and use your craft to make it even better lyrically. Let's, let's give an example. You have used this one with me on numerous occasions, The Sun. Most people would write The Sun or The Hot Sun. The Hot Sun. The Hot Sun. Master well, writer would give you... Well, you know, most songwriters use my rhyming dictionaries and phrasal dictionaries and, and we have uh, all the figures of speech. Yeah. And... Uh, but you're talking about a dictionary called word families, which just gives you those words you won't find in a thesaurus. You know, so if you're if you you're trying to write a lyric about the hot sun beating down, uh, a thesaurus will give you burning and blazing and fiery, but word families will give you an angry sun, a punishing sun. A glaring sun, an unforgiving sun. Ooh, like See, that one. Yeah. Th those are More interesting. just another level of descriptive words that writers or songwriters uh, can really use just to be different, to stand out. And that's just one of like just one many, of many, many things that the master writer does. So you've got all these huge hit songwriters that use master writer and Frankly, it's always surprised me and simultaneously put a smile on my face. List, well, list off like five look, of the people but, that come. To oh no, we have a lot of guys: David Foster, Babyface, Trent Reznor. Uh, um, gosh, help me, Matt. Uh, Rob Thomas, Rob Thomas uh, Gwen Stefani, Kenny Loggins, Kenny Loggins. So people um, of that level of their craft and, and that amount of success. Yet I give them a lot of credit for not being so egotistical that they don't realize that their stuff can always well, be better and that they use a tool like that. Remember master. my athlete analogy. Yeah. There's not an athlete that wouldn't buy a program that would make them 5% better. All right? right? Now, if you're a songwriter, master writer will make you a lot better than 5%. So the question is, if you're a songwriter, why wouldn't you want that edge? You know, you need every edge you can get in this business. I, I go back to what I always say, which is musicians or songwriters in particular feel like they're either born with talent and greatness and, and there's a sense of entitlement. And I don't, uh, your argument is, is perfectly strong and I buy it. I, I buy it. Um, well, I'm going to make one more argument for you. Okay. Okay? Yeah. The brain. Yeah is an amazing instrument. And where we get the inspiration for our songs, no one knows, but it's probably God-given. It's mm -hmm. a connection that is not there 24-7. It's a connection that only comes when it wants to come. Right. All right? The muse. Yes. So if you are connected to your muse and you're writing the song and you're getting that emotional ingredient that's going to touch others okay you want to keep that connection so if in writing this song you need a rhyme for night why would you use this limited rolodex 
of the mind mm. to say uh, fight, bite, write. Why? You see, you go from the creative side of the brain to the analytical side, and you review a very limited Rolodex of rhymes for a night when yeah. you can stay connected. If Master Rider is open, you just feed night in there and bang, all of the possibilities for night are right in front of you. And you can collect as many as you want, then look at your lyrics and see which ones work. So it's just a very, uh, uh, what is the word I'm looking for? Efficient way to write. And you use your brain to create that song and you use Master Writer for the reference when you need a rhyme for night or sea or day or whatever it is. It's funny, uh, our taxi members that are composers that do a lot of uh, TV stuff in particular, all talk about how they've become faster and better over time because they don't spend time searching for sounds. When they're sitting down to compose a, a attention cue, they don't sit there and think, oh, should I use the pizzicato strings from this library or that library? Should I go with a darker tone? They put that stuff to the side and they just go, okay, these are pitsy notes in here and they just write them in as pitsy or play them you know, into MIDI and know that they're gonna be pizzicato and later they go back, almost like songwriters use Master Writer. If they wanna keep the flow going, they could just put night in there and go back later so they don't lose the flow. But you're saying use it to keep the flow going, which makes perfect sense as well. Well, once again, any way you feel most comfortable. Yeah. You can use it during the creative process, and once that connection is gone, now you look at what the muse gave you, and you say, how can I find a better way to express myself? How can I make this better? And then Master Writer, as a, as a, as a tool, shines to, to help you find to make what you really want to express the best it can be. You know, remember one thing. The greatest enemy of creation is distraction. So however you do it, like your guy with the pizzicato notes, yeah. stay in the moment, listen to the muse, and then you can always go back and, and make those decisions uh, when it isn't interfering with uh, that connection. Let's talk about Nadia's theme. Let's go back to your songwriting for a moment. Um, it has to be one of the most successful instrumental things to ever hit radio in the history of music. There haven't been, it's Ferranti and Teicher there, you know, well, what was that, Love is Blue was them? Uh, it would have to be considered my biggest copyright, I think. Well, and just, I mean, there haven't been that many instrumental hits in the history of the business. Certainly not in modern, you know, from the 60s forward. Um, how did that come about? Well, I did a movie for Stanley Kramer called Bless the Beast and Children. Right. And, and you uh, did it as scoring it? Or, or? Scoring it and, um, and wrote the songs. Uh, um, and um, Bless the Beast and Children, you know, was recorded by the Carpenters. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, as it turns out, my second movie, I was nominated for an Academy Award, and it was a hit with the Carpenters, so it was terrific. Um, he the, says that so modestly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I, I got in, almost got in some trouble here, because Bless the Beast and Children, 
I, I wove this theme throughout the whole picture. It's about a bunch of kids who were misfits at a summer camp, and they try to rescue this herd of buffalo. And uh, in the process, the, the lead kid is accidentally killed. All right, so it's a very sad moment. Well, here I had used this theme in a major key throughout the whole picture, and now this little boy is killed. And I, you can't play a major a theme yeah. in a major, you know, key. So I said, "What am I going to do?" And it wouldn't be appropriate just to write something out of the wind there, you know, because it, there's no connection to the score. And I had really kind of painted myself into a corner. It was only my second movie, so it's understandable. So I said, "What am I going to do here?" Uh, and then it occurred to me, the accompaniment to Bless the Beast and the Children was this very uh, identifiable uh, motif, mm -hmm. you know, where, where, where the, the chord went to the ninth and then back to the tonic, back to the ninth, back to the tonic. So it was a very recognizable motif. So I said, wow, what if I take that motif, that accompaniment, and just put it in a minor key? So now I have the identification of that motif, and all I have to do is write a new melody over those chords. And that was enough identification with the, the main theme that uh, it, it worked. Right. Now, because it was such an important and crucial time in the picture, the only way I know to treat that is to write a melody that touches the heart. And how do you know it touches the heart? Because it touches your heart, you see? And that's an important criteria. When you're writing a song, if it doesn't touch you emotionally, you don't have anything. Let's listen to it and see how it touches us emotionally. Volume is up.
Christ. good and people are talking oh yeah that's the thing from the young and the restless which it became so how did it go from the film to the tv show and that must have been one of the happy well, days of your life you know it's funny you you can hear the sadness in there playing yeah. that scene but it did touch me emotionally and it worked in the movie and i was really happy now when you do a score for a movie you name all the cues mm -hmm because that's how you get paid on your performances. And so that little cue was called Cotton's Dream, because that's the kid that died. Mm -hmm. And the picture came out, didn't do that well, had a hit with the Carpenters and all that with Bless the Beast, and then it was essentially over. And then two years later, a producer called me up and said, you know something, uh, on the Bless the Beast and Children soundtrack album, there was a cue called Cotton's Dream. I said, yes. He said, well, I got a new daytime television show going on the air, and I'd like to use that as my main title theme. What do you think of that? And I said, well, yeah, if you were here, that. I'd be kissing your hands. That's what I think about it. Of course you can use that. So Cotton's Dream became theme for the young and the restless. Uh, and, I mean, where, it's, it's like my first hit. How did this guy, this TV producer, hear this soundtrack? And but You that must cut, have done something so right at some point <laughs> in your lifetime. But the cut just... Hit him, and, and wow. with all the possibilities, he wanted that as the theme for The Young and Restless. So it came out, and there was a flurry of recordings, but nothing happened really, a lot. I mean, there was, you know, some people recorded, but nothing that turned it into a hit or anything. But five days a week, national television, Daytime. songwriters, that's a lot of performances. It was a very, very happy thing for me. Now, five years from the time I did the movie, Nadia Comaneci stole the heart of the world by winning a perfect score on the double horizontal bars, and it was filmed in slow motion. And some music director at ABC in New York 
needed a piece of music to play behind this slow motion film clip of Nadia Comaneci winning the first perfect score. And I guess he, in his library, you know, which is all these different albums, things yeah. like he remembers on on a soundtrack album for Blessed Be, there was a cut that might work. This is a five what, years. What year was this approximately? Like 80s? I, I forget. Do you? No, was it? I remember Saturday Night Live used to speak. Yeah, yeah, it was probably in the, in the 70s, I yeah. think. Anyway, he remembered there was a soundtrack album with his cut, Cotton's Dream. And he listens to it, he says, it'll work perfectly. Wow. So he laid the original cut from the soundtrack album, Cotton's Dream, behind Nadia Comaneci. And there was an immediate reaction to this. And of course, they were playing it all on every television mm. station. And A&M re-released Cotton's Dream and retitled it as Nadia's Theme. And they released it to radio. Yeah. Yeah, it, it was a single, yeah. and, which is mind-blowing in yeah, and of itself. Yeah, and it, it turns out to be the biggest copyright of my career. Once again, a lot of luck involved in, in that happening. There's just one small addendum then years later, uh, Mary J. Blige does no more drama based on Nadia's theme. So this little cotton stream keeps reinventing itself. And it's still on the show, by the way. Right, you know that. Yeah, it's still on the Young and the Restless. Text, but. And, you know, it's, it's just a miraculous little piece of music. But once again, I mean, give me melody, boy. If you write the right melody, you you just never know where it's going to land. Um, let's jump ahead. Uh, um, let's let's go to SWAT. Um, Bria, can you play SWAT, please? And then we'll talk about it. Right back. I feel like I should be in character. Huggy Bear. <laughs> I did the arrangement. Yeah. You always had an orchestrator. Right. He had to write all steam me up. And the music's that good.
synthesizer. Just come out, man. It wasn't a lot. Sounds really good. that was when you wrote it well um, I gotta make this short um, th this it's just amazing but all these stories have the same kind of center line to them you know that's because you are the center line of all well, this stuff <laughs> but you're the common thread I, I, I had done bless the beast and children I had never done a television show and I was going into a club in L.A. with my wife, and I bumped into Aaron Spelling, who was a big television producer. And so the biggest we, of the big. Yeah, we yeah. said hello, and 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 Jalinda was pregnant at the time, so he made a big fuss about her belly and all that. And <laughs> and I said to him, kidding on the square, Aaron, you know you have all these hit television shows, but you've never had a hit theme. Why don't you give me a shot one of these days and I'll write you a hit theme. I was kidding on the square because nobody can predict you're going to write a hit yeah. theme. And he said, I'll give it some thought, Barry. And then about six months later, I get a call in Santa Barbara, Aaron Spelling's office. He has a, a new show going on mid-season. wants you to come down to 20th and look at it. Well, I was so excited. So I got in my car, went to L.A., went to 20th. They showed me to the screening room, and I, I, I'm all excited. And they play it for me, and it's a, the SWAT truck, and these guys coming out of it with the guns, and it's just about a SWAT team. And I said, oh, I was so disappointed. How do you write a hit about a SWAT team? I mean, <laughs> everyone hated SWAT. You know, it was done the L.A. riots, you know, I mean, the SWAT team, they were the Nazis of L.A. And, you know, I said, couldn't it have been a guy and a girl, two guys, two girls, anything I can get my teeth in. Instead, he gives me a SWAT team. You know, I... Uh. Well, at so, least he knew it would be up-tempo. Yeah, so I went into his office, says, well, and I said, oh, great, Aaron. So I went back to Santa Barbara, and for one week, I tried to write a hit about a SWAT team, and at the end of the week, I finally said... 
it's impossible <laughs> to write a hit about a SWAT team. So the next best thing is I was going to use my contemporary chops because at that time television was kind of jazzy and big band. So what I, year was this? 76. Okay. I said, I'm going to use some rock and roll here and, 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 and give him a really exciting theme, a bombastic, exciting theme. And in that process, he'll forget that it's not going to be a hit. It'll serve the show. And so I really spent my time seeing this truck pull up and these guys burst out of the doors and to, to write a theme that would play that and kick it off. And, and so I did that. Did you have to time it to picture as well? Oh, the, yeah, yeah. Whenever you do a score, everything is timed. Uh, but this the was a theme. So well, yeah, but was, even the theme has to be but timed. But the, the intro of the show is the same thing every week, so you yes. had to time it. Okay. Right. So it was very heavily rhythm-oriented, obviously. And, you know, what I learned in the music business, a lot of people don't understand this, Rhythm is what rock and roll is all about. And you just don't go in there in 10 minutes and knock off a rhythm track. It can take days sometimes. So I went to the music director who worked for Spelling, a guy called Rocky, and I said, could I have a session just with the rhythm players? And he laughed. He said, buddy, this is television, <laughs> you know? No, we don't do that. We get the band in and you just, you know. Three takes yeah, and we're yeah. done. And uh, I said, Rocky, I, I, I just need some time with you. So he finally said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll give you an hour. So I'll have the rhythm players come in an hour early and then the rest of the orchestra. Now this is my first time. You know, in motion pictures, they gave you a reasonable amount of time to get it right. In television, you don't have that. You have a three-stripe, you go in there, one rundown, take, next. You know, it's a whole yeah. different ball game. And, uh, and it was my first ball game, so I was nervous. And I wanted to have it turn out good, and I wanted to please Aaron. <clears throat> anyway, the rhythm players were in there an hour early. I was in a studio I'd never recorded in. I didn't know the engineer. A lot of things were against me. Mm -hmm. And I was in the studio trying to get this rhythm together. And, uh, you know, rhythm is nothing you can write. You can write out the chord symbols, but you've got to get the rhythm players to get into that groove. And after an hour, I was nowhere. I mean, I didn't have what was in my head that I needed. Yeah. And now Rocky walks out in the studio and says, well, that's it. I've got 28 musicians in the coffee room. Get it to tape. Now every shred in my body wanted to say, okay, Rocky, because I've just been given my orders. But I couldn't do it. And so I said, Rocky, I, I, I just can't. I can't. I can't go to tape now. It's not ready. He said, maybe you didn't understand what I said. Hello, Mr. Spelling. Yeah. I said, we get it to tape because I've got 28 players I'm paying. I said, I can't do it. Holy he said, crap. He said, you've just taken control of this session. I want you to understand that. And he turned on his heel and walked out. Now I'm really tense 
I'm there with the rhythm players, and I'm trying. Another 45 minutes go by, and I finally get it. So I go into the booth to get it down to tape, and man, it's like death in there. Nobody's <laughs> talking to me, you know. And this will be the first and last time yeah, I ever yeah, see Barry yeah. DeVore's on So I said to the engineer, let's hit it. We got the rhythm tracks down. And then he sarcastically says, can I let the rest of the orchestra in now, Barry? I said, yes. And the rest of the orchestra comes in. And it's, 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 I'm very tense. You know, it's my first time and everything is happening. Anyway, during a break, he tells the engineer, uh, you know, I, I did the main title on 24-track, and the cues were on three-strike. He tells the engineer, uh, run off a rough off the 24-track on the theme. So I hear that, and I said, uh, excuse me, why? Why do you want him to run off a rough off the 24-track? Well, Mr. Spelling wants to hear the theme. And I said, you're, you're going to take a five-minute rough mix off a 24-track for Mr. Spelling to hear my theme? Hmm. He said, that's what Mr. Spelling wants, Barry. I said, well, no. No. When Mr. Spelling hears my theme, he's going to hear it the way I visualized it. And he looked at me and said, son, you've done the first and last television show you'll ever do for us. I want you to know that. <laughs> And uh, so now I'm doubly tense. Finish the uh, thing. Everyone leaves. No, they, no one says goodbye. No one acknowledges me. They just leave. And I'm there with the engineer, who turns out to be a pretty nice guy, an Israeli guy. And uh, and so we mix it. And uh, then I go to my apartment in L.A. And uh, I call my wife. She says, "Well, how did it go? How did it go?" And I said, "How did it go?" I have a double vodka in my hand, and I've never had a more tense day than the one I had today. You know, uh, she says, "Well, how did it turn out?" I said, "You know something, baby. I don't even know at this stage. I am so stressed. I don't even know how it turned out." And so the next day, I didn't hear from anybody, which is not a good sign. And uh, and then in the afternoon, I got a call from Len Goldberg who was Aaron's partner. Yeah. Aunt Len is the hatchet man. Ooh. Aaron didn't like confrontation, so when anyone had to get bad news, it was usually Len who gave it to them. So he was calling me, so I got on the phone, getting ready for the, <laughs> the killing blow. He said, Barry, that theme is great. Aaron is dancing around the office. He loves it. He thinks it's the best. You know, he's going crazy. He says, now, you went over budget. <laughs> That's a no-no, Barry. We can't do this again. You know, this is television. But it was worth it for this theme. So, I tell this story to my kids. Because sometimes in life, you just got to do what you have to do. And if that was going to be the last time I worked for Aaron Spelling, so be it. But had I not taken that stand, I wouldn't have had a number one record. Because that's exactly what happened to the theme from SWAT. It went to number one in the nation. When I, I never dreamt you could write a hit about a SWAT team. Number one in and every chart. 
In 76, we're talking the Eagles were a hit. Fleetwood Mac was a hit. Uh -huh. And here comes Barry Dvorzon with this up-tempo, wah-wah guitar theme, and you have a hit. Yeah. Unbelievable. And, you know, today there isn't a marching band in the United States that doesn't have that in their and repertoire. The show is, there have been SWAT movies, another SWAT TV show. Yeah. So you seem to have a habit of writing stuff that's timeless. And, and I mean, look at this. If we're talking 40 years later, that copyright is still working for you. 40 uh, years. No one is more impressed than me, believe me. <laughs> you know, I, I have to pinch you, myself every once in a while. That's what makes you so lovable is that you don't walk around with your nose in the air. You walk around astonished at your own success. I must admit, yes. That, that's a pretty cool thing to do. Um, we've got 15 minutes left. Wow, time is, I told you it would fly. Uh, let's, I want to play In the City. Um, because when you told me that you co-wrote that with Joe Walsh, all your stories are great. And I, I sit there like a kid at his father's feet, you know, Dad, tell me another story. <laughs> but Joe Walsh, the Eagles, and then Barry Dvorzon, co-writing with Joe Walsh. So obviously it happened for the movie The Warriors, which we talked touched on earlier, it's, you know, become a, a cult classic. Um, how did that session go where you walk into a room uh, you know uh, how did it happen that you got teamed up with joe walsh was it your idea was it somebody else's idea and how did the writing session start well joe and i were friends you know he lived in montecito oh i didn't know that yeah he and jody oh. he was married to jody at the time and they lived in montecito and we were friends and so when i got the picture of the warriors uh and started working on it I thought, wow, you know, this might be a great uh, end title song. Uh, and, and, and I called Joe and I said, hey, you want to write an end title song with me? He said, sure. So we got together to write the end title. Uh, you know, the Warriors had a, th a very electric kind of theme for mm -hmm. the main title. But I, I needed an end title song. And since Joe was a... Uh, not only a friend, but he was an artist at the time. Yeah, he was uh, um, yeah, the smoker yeah. you get, the player, the smoker you drink, yeah. the player you get. Or whatever. Right, great song. Life's been good. Yeah, um, so recorded in Miami. So it was easy. We got together. Joe is a really cool guy, and and uh, and uh, he came to my house, and we were and we wrote it, and uh, and then um, then we got the A-list a musicians and and went in and recorded it and uh, and that's uh, did Simsic engineer that because I, I was listening no, to it no, earlier no. it sounds like um, Eagles Tom Tom Simsic had a very signature yeah Tom no Tom he Tom. didn't uh, we did it I think at Western or United in LA um, but um, but so so the Warriors came, came out and Joe and I wrote the end title, and it was all great. Did you but, write it at your house? Oh, yeah. In Montecito? Oh, yeah. Um, in the room with the piano and... I was on Joe the piano, and Joe was on the guitar. Yeah. Did he write it on an acoustic? No, he had electric. Electric? Wow. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, uh, 
was so anyway, upstairs yelling, turn that shit down. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, but, um, but as it turns out, Joe didn't release it, you know, as an artist. Yeah. So it just was on the soundtrack album, but it was never released as a single. And so that was that. And then one day, uh, you know, the Eagles had a huge success with Hotel California, and they were working on the follow-up album. The Long Run. Yeah, The Long Run. And Joe calls me up, and Joe speaks with kind of a drawled, Barry, how you doing, you know? Good, Joe. He says, um, you know, uh, the Eagles are thinking of recording in the city. Now, I'm thinking, the Eagles are thinking of recording in the city. The follow-up album to Hotel California. I said, Joe, I want you to do me a favor. Never mention this again. <laughs> until you can walk into my house with an Eagles album and my song is on there. Because if it gets lost in the mix, and it does, you know, they go into the studio and they record maybe 20 songs and maybe 10 make the cut. Yeah. You know? I said, if I let myself believe that the Eagles are going to record the song and they don't, it doesn't make the cut, I'll kill myself. So let's leave it alone. Till you can walk in with that album. And one day, <laughs> my front gate bell rang. Hello? It's Joe, I got something I want to play you. And he walked in and played me the Long Run album. I was probably one of the first ones to hear it. What a great And my that song was, was on it. Let's yeah. listen to it. Um, I think this is the Eagles version that I pulled to put on it.
You only write classic songs. I mean, it's a classic. Can I come here once a month? <laughs> yeah, baby. You certainly can. <laughs> um, did you hear all these parts, the vocal parts and stuff, or was that stuff put in, uh, was that part of the Eagles production, or were you and Joe working out those parts? No, actually, as you were the, writing? The, 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 the background vocals weren't in there. And, uh, and um, after we recorded it, I felt something was missing. So I added uh, uh, three black singers in the background. And then I called Joe. I said, I'm sending you something over. I just felt it needed some, some of those background vocals. But if you don't like it, I'll take it out. Because obviously, you know, black singers behind Joe is not exactly... Right, it's, it's a mismatch. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, he got back to me and said, no, man, I think it works. I said, okay. So, I mean, basically the Eagles Meant took those vocal parts, yeah. Wow. Um, how was he to write with? Was it, Did the session just flow or were there... Yeah, we were... Uh, yeah, it, it was fun writing with him. Uh, we, you know, nobody uh, was defensive. We were just friends and respected each other and you know you just work with each other till something happens do you remember probably five years ago or so i called you up about four days before the road rally and said um diane warren is sick as a dog and can't do the road rally she was our honoree that year and I, she called <clears> me on the phone it's Diane. I mean, literally, like, <laughs> couldn't even say a whole sentence, and I was freaking out. I mean, you know, 2,500 people coming to town, and I've got no star to put up there. So Barry says, you want me to call Walsh or Kenny Loggins or somebody? He starts picking up the phone, calling all these people to see if they would fill in and do the road rally. Um, I remember Joe, I think, said, I'd do it, but I'm not going to be in town. Yeah. And, and funny enough, Jeff Greenberg at, at Village had also called Joe. And I uh -huh. think Joe's response was, I just hung up the phone and buried the fours on him asking <laughs> the same question. <laughs> wow. Um, I need to allot enough time. We're going to give away a, a year-long license for Master Writer. So before we get into that, I want to talk about one, another one of your entrepreneurial ventures. Um, SongGuard, it's something that you had the idea for years ago, and you just recently rolled it out. Um, I've, I've tried to explain it to a few people that I know, and they go, well, why do people need that? So can you tell us what it is and why they need it? Well, <clears throat> we're very excited about SongGuard because <clears throat> it's something that I feel is really needed by the songwriter, a service. Um, you know, times change, and uh, <clears throat> I need a little water here. Go for it. When I was writing songs, usually you gave your songs to a publisher. You got an agreement, he copyrighted the song, and he served as a writer's agent. He would take it around and get it recorded. Today, the publisher's role is very different from mm -hmm. those days. Mostly they administer catalogs uh, of big artists and producers. <coughs> I don't know, I'm getting a... <coughs> you want a lozenge? Frog in my throat. No, I'm fine. Okay. <clears throat> I think I've talked too much. 
Um, I gave you a little bit of a workout. I do have really good lozenges if you need one. Okay. Anyway, um, today it's really up to the songwriter to get his song out there. Because right, everybody's indie or so many people yeah. are indie. Yeah. And especially if he's a songwriter artist or what have you, the only way to get it out there and hope something happens with it is to get it online, to send it to artists and producers and publishers and labels. And I know songwriters. Yes, you, you do. Know, they, <laughs> money is a consideration. Yeah. And um, most of them are putting their songs out there and they're not protected. And in my day, maybe five or six or seven people might have seen that song. Now millions of people see that song, including all of the people that are currently making the music. Mm -hmm. And people are people. If they hear something, yeah, they might want to borrow from it or take from Even it. Even if they don't do it by intent, it could just absorb into them. Sometimes they hear it once and right. three months later think it's their invention. Yeah. So here's the problem. Uh, you put your song out there and it's not protected. It costs $35 to copyright a song with one writer, 55 to copyright a song with two or more. And this year it's going up to $55 for one song. Well, they have to charge writer. for all that efficiency at the copyright office. You know something? They have it in front of Congress and they're telling Congress even at these new prices they're losing money. And it's now going to cost $75 for two or more writers. <clears throat> now, very quickly, here's copyright law. The minute you write a song, and put it in any tangible form, that means a CD, a, a manuscript, paper, yeah. anything, you have an automatic copyright. The reason you register with the U.S. Copyright Office, and this is what's so confusing, is they don't give you a copyright, you already have a copyright. They just give you a confirmation of the they registration. They yeah. prove and verify the date of creation. And that is essential evidence in case of an infringement. Mm -hmm. When did you write it and what did you write? The content, the melody, the lyrics. So essentially, that is what you get when you register with a copyright office. When you register with SongGuard, you get the same proof of date of creation as a copyright provides you. Except with SongGuard, it only costs $3.95. Because it's so cheap, a lot of people think it's a scam, right. but it isn't. So at least they, they can't use that to go to court and fight the case, but they can use it in conjunction with the registration of the copyright? That registration is their evidence of the date of creation. With SongGuard? Or, or with, with SongGuard. Okay. Now, copyright, same thing. What a copyright does for you that a registration with SongGuard doesn't do for you is it's your ticket to the courtroom. In other words, if someone steals my song, I hire an attorney. Okay, I want to go after these people. Mm -hmm. The attorney says, do you have a copyright? 
U.S. copyright, no. Well, you must file for U.S. copyright right now. So if you and I and Joe Walsh sat down tonight to co-write a song, did you hear that, Joe? I'm just saying. Um, and we register it with SongGuard, and five years down the road, somebody else has hijacked that song, yep. infringed the copyright, but we haven't registered with the copyright office yet. We could register at that point and use SongGuard as the proof of data creation. Right. Now, so on, that, on that... Let's follow that path. Okay. So now, five years later, from the time we wrote the song, somebody steals our song. Mm -hmm. I get an attorney, we, we get a copyright. Now, the guy who stole the song has a copyright that right. precedes ours. He got a copyright on the song he stole six months before our copyright. But you've got proof of the data creation. I've got proof of the data creation with SongGuard. So you go into court with your copyright, which gives you the statutory advantages like damages, injunctive relief, and attorney's fees. So you get that with a U.S. copyright. But when you go in with that U.S. copyright, you also go in with the encrypted and, and impeccable evidence of the date that song was created. So not only do you provide, or not only does SongGuard provide a, a kind of a certificate of data creation, you actually keep the song on file. When you register with SongGuard, it gets a digital signature, a date stamp, it's encrypted, and it's stored on a secure server. You get a receipt with a certificate uh, that you keep for your records, yeah. which gives you the same encrypted information. The content, you know, the lyrics, the melody, whatever was submitted. And if that is altered in any way, it's not valid. So it's really impeccable proof, third-party proof. Right. Uh, and if there is an infringement lawsuit, we send that encrypted information to the court or the attorney and a technician we give them the key, unlocks right. it, and proves that this. So it's a it's a, a cheap throw. Three ninety five, three dollars ninety five cents. Three dollars ninety five cents. I thought, boy, what a great idea to make it so accessible. But we're getting so much feedback saying, "You're going to protect my song for three ninety five. They think it's a scam. I mean, and, uh, for so many musicians that have you know. 20 or 50 or 100 songs that they've never bothered to copyright because it's cost prohibitive, I, I would register those with SongGuard and not file the copyrights until I had to. Well, as but, long as you've but, got you're, but you're very right. You, you can file a copyright when you need it. Yeah. Or <clears throat> you can also, uh, when you accumulate a number of songs, if it's by the same writer, yeah. you can copyright them as a suite Right. For the same price as one copyright. But SongGuard just allows you to protect your current songs. If you write something great and you want to get it out there, yeah. you don't want to wait around, but you don't want to get it out there if it's not protected. And the website is SongGuard.com? SongGuard.com. And guess what? When you open an account, there is no cost to open an account. Right. No future obligation. And we're going to give you one free registration just to show you how it works. That's smart. All right. Yeah. Cool. Remember that. Songguard.com. Uh, let's give away a one-year license to Master Writer. Okay. Um, Bria, 
why don't you do it over there? So Bria's got the chat room up and basically everybody who would like a one-year license to Master Writer, type in a plus one and Bria will run the magic finger up and down the list, go like that, pick one, and then that person has to email Bria at taxitv at taxi.com and she will connect you probably with Barry's son, Matt, who happens to be here in the studio today, uh, and he will hook you up. So here we go. Um, little background music. Yeah, if you guys haven't tried Master Writer yet, you're missing out. You know, I'll say that's a lot of people. And come on, pick one. Okay, uh, Steven Spinner. Steven Spinner? Mm -hmm. Steven Spinner, yes. You have won a one year license to Master Writer and all the delicious goodness that comes with it. Stephen, my advice is when you get it, learn everything.